$3,410.40 is a lot of money. Working minimum wage, someone flipping burgers at a Wisconsin McDonald's would earn $3,410.40 in about three months. In 1845, $3,410.40 was worth substantially more. In terms of purchasing power, the amount of stuff you could buy with $3,410.40 in 1845 is roughly equivalent to the amount of stuff you could buy today with $117,000. The same minimum wage employee would earn that amount of money in about seven years if they didn't take any days off. In 1845, a wealthy Bostonian named Amos A. Lawrence gave this much money, almost a third of which was an interest-free loan, to an itinerant Methodist missionary of Native American ancestry who lived a thousand miles away to buy some land he had never set foot on in his life. This itinerant Methodist missionary would later go on to play a public claim to the throne of France. This man's name was Elazar Williams. This is Elazar Williams' story. To tell the story of most people, it makes sense to start at the beginning, or at least close to the beginning, of their lives. This is because child and young adulthood, for most people, have some bearing on adulthood. Elazar Williams is not like most people. His childhood, as well-heeled and morally regulated as it was, has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on the man he would eventually gain infamy, or perhaps fame, as... To Elazar Williams' great credit, at some points in his life, being a not-nice person must have seemed like a very good idea, and, as we will see, he was very good at it. However, eventually everyone around him would realize who he really was, abandon him, and leave him to die, leave him to die penniless and alone, which he eventually did. Did he deserve it? Maybe. Let's get back to this land transaction for a minute. Things may get a little bit confusing. Technically, this business transaction started out as between Amos A. Lawrence's father, confusingly also named Amos Lawrence, and Elazar Williams, who was handed off to Amos A. as he started to take over day-to-day running of his father's business affairs. How Amos Lawrence the Elder became interested in buying 5,000 acres of land from Elazar Williams is somewhat of a mystery. Perhaps it was the two men's shared Methodist faith. The two apparently met through mutual connections in the church, and Williams was a minister, missionary, and accomplished translator of Christian texts into native languages. This argument is bolstered by the fact that Williams makes constant reference in his letters to how good, and Christian, a man Amos Lawrence was for helping out a fellow Methodist in trouble. However, by 1845, Amos Lawrence's brother, Abbott Lawrence, was involved in developing a manufacturing town on the banks of the fast-flowing Merrimack River in Massachusetts, This town, later to be named Lawrence after him, was well on the way to becoming an industrial powerhouse on par with any in the country at the time, one which presumably made Cabot Lawrence a boatload of money. Was Amos Lawrence's decision to buy the Williams Tract, which had frontage on one of the fastest-flowing rivers in the Midwest, influenced by his brother's success in a fast-flowing river back east? Whatever the case, Amos Lawrence was interested in what Elazar Williams had to offer him, Elazar Williams smelled money in the water and latched on to the Lawrence family like a tick. He would be a thorn in their side for years. 
Williams was not the kind of man who could let any kind of money slip through his fingers. Some money that very nearly slipped through his fingers was tied up in the land that he'd later sell to Amos Lawrence. This land was given to him as a dowry from his wife, whom he'd met when he was in his 30s and when she was 14 and a student of his at a school for Indians in Green Bay. By the time he married his wife in 1823, he'd also been caught embezzling roughly $1,600 from the New York Oneida tribe, a task which he accomplished over about eight years. This was characteristic of Williams, who was constantly in debt and in search of money. Even those who would have every reason to think of him as a good man, such as Oneida chief Scanandoa, were forced to acknowledge his constant begging. Amos Lawrence's own lawyer, Henry S. Baird, writes in a confidential letter to Lawrence that Williams is known to be, quote, very foxy, unquote, and recommends caution when dealing business with him. As to why Elazar Williams was in constant debt, it's difficult to say. There simply just wasn't much in Wisconsin in the 1830s to blow thousands upon thousands of dollars on. Some of the librarians at Lawrence University, when asked, speculated that he may have been a real estate speculator, but so far I've not been able to find any records of this. What I have been able to find evidence of is that Elzar Williams kept a good house, complete with fancy china and had regular visitors, even some from overseas. What I haven't been able to find evidence of was Elazar Williams ever having held down a job after he left the army, or at least one where he didn't just take money and never show up to work. It seems that begging people for cash was his job, and, if you'll recall, he's in the middle of begging someone for more money than he's ever seen in one place in his life. The first indication that Elazar Williams may not be doing business in complete good faith with Elazar Williams appears before the deal is even finalized. Williams sends a letter to Amos A. Lawrence saying that, oh, conveniently enough, he had forgotten to mention until the sale was already pretty much final that several of his creditors had placed liens on the property he was about to sell. Additionally, the same property had technically already been sold by the sheriff's office for unpaid taxes three years previously. So, if Amos A. Lawrence wanted to purchase the land, he'd have to pay off the existing encumbrances on it, and possibly could he chip in a few dollars for a friend in need, perhaps in too deep to back out now, and still earnestly believing the sob story sent to him by this poor, impoverished minister, Amos A. Lawrence agrees to pay off the liens on the property and help pay off William's personal debts by giving him a $1,000 loan. This was a mistake. Elazar Williams smells a sucker and latches on to Amos A., Despite living rent-free on the land he technically didn't own anymore, he would continue to hound Lawrence for years about money, land, or anything really else that he could. Amos Lawrence, the man whom just a few months and years previously had given this man a $1,000 loan, no questions asked, begins to grow increasingly frustrated with Elazar. In a draft letter to Henry Baird, one of his lawyers, who previously cautioned him to be cautious in his dealings with Williams, if you'll recall... In this draft letter, he seems to be toying with the idea of evicting Williams. Phrases such as, I shall be forced, and therefore it will perhaps be as well as to sell, are written and then crossed out on the page. Eventually, even the patience that made Lawrence cross out these things was gone. 
Williams continued begging him for money for years, and by 1852, Lawrence is so exasperated that he has resorted to writing cheeky comments in pencil on the letters he receives from Williams. On one letter, dated January 19, 1852, Amos Lawrence scribbles, Lazy and deceitful old man on the top of the first page, and... Having completed my begging excursion for this season, on the hall made a pretty good haul, just threw out a well-baited hook on the final page. Elazar Williams has just burned another bridge. John Y. Smith, a historian who knew Williams personally in the latter years of his life, would go on later to say of him that, I doubt whether there was a man in Green Bay whose word commanded less confidence than that of Elazar Williams. And yet... Elazar Williams' greatest con was still to come. His victims this time were not those around him, or even really those in his own lifetime, but instead, us. Today. In 1853, an article appeared in Putnam's Monthly Magazine in New York, titled, Have We a Bourbon Among Us? In it, our rather breathless author, John Hansen, lays out evidence pointing to the fact that Elazar Williams is actually the lost dauphin of France. At this time, only 40 or so years after the French Revolution, it was widely believed, incorrectly, that one of the Bourbon princes had been spirited to safety outside of France and escaped the guillotine. Many pretenders sprang up across Europe and the Americas, and Williams has just added to his name to that list. Apparently, he may have prepared himself for this eventuality by pretending to be the Count de Lorraine whilst enrolled in college, a title that never actually existed in France. His claim to the French throne was announced through Hansen's articles and even a book, The Lost Prince, also written by Hansen. Evidence for this claim was his own memories, his resemblance as a young man to portraits of the six-year-old prince, and various scars on his body which were apparently identical to those left on the Dauphin by his imprisonment by the revolutionaries. This announcement started an enormous back-and-forth debate between supporters and detractors of William's claim. The claim was, of course, completely preposterous, but still, some authors spent pages upon pages disproving every claim and counterclaim bought up by the legions of conspiracy theorists leaping to defend Williams and his claim to the throne. This was Williams' greatest con. These elaborate teardowns of his pretensions to the French throne that had to be in every article written about him sucked the oxygen away from his financial and other misdeeds. Even though very few people actually believed that Williams was the rightful king of France, his claims and the lengths reporters and historians had to go in order to disprove them all meant that he would eventually be remembered not as the man loathed by all of Green Bay and beyond for being a parasite and worse, but as the man loved by them for being the slightly zany historical character who once claimed to be the king of France. Williams, in his infinite foxiness, most likely knew that this would happen. Elazar Williams' last victim is us. Thank you very much, and I hope you have all enjoyed listening to this podcast. I would like to thank Gretchen Revy, Andrew McSorley, Arno Damerall, David Burke, the Lawrence University Archives, and especially Lawrence's fantastic archivist Aaron Dix, as well as the University Library as a whole for the help I received while re researching this often misremembered man. Thank you very much for listening.